Welcome to the WSU Wheat Beat Podcast. I'm your host, Drew Lyon, and I want to thank you for joining me as we explore the world of small grains production and research at Washington State University. In each episode, I speak with researchers from WSU and the USDA ARS to provide you with insights into the latest research on wheat and barley production. If you enjoy the WSU Wheat Beat podcast, do us a favor and subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. And leave us a review while you're there so others can find the show too. My guest today is Dr. Bill Schillner. Bill is WSU's Dryland Cropping Systems Agronomist. He is based at the WSU Lynn Dryland Research Station. Bill conducts long-term cropping systems field experiments and also short-duration field and laboratory studies. Prior to joining WSU, Bill worked in agricultural development projects for 10 years in Asia and Africa with the U.S. Peace Corps and the U.S. Agency for International Development. He has also conducted numerous short-term consultancies around the world for the World Bank, USAID, and the Food and Agricultural Organization of the United Nations. Hello, Bill. Hi, Drew. Thanks for having me today. It's a pleasure to have you on. Um, you, you do a lot of great work out there in the low rainfall region of eastern Washington. Uh, I don't, we don't have time to talk about all the uh, neat projects you have going, but in this episode, I'd like to discuss your work with three promising crops for Washington's drylands, those being winter canola, winter pea, and winter triticale. I wonder if you can tell us why winter crops and not spring crops. Uh, well, Drew, in a nutshell, uh, you know, farmers and, and researchers have been looking at uh, spring crops for, oh, uh, decades and decades and decades, and uh, those include wheat, barley, oats, you know, pea, canola, camelina, mustard, safflower, sunflower, flax, sorghum, you, and, and others. And uh, in a nutshell, uh, none of these have been profitable uh, or stable in the long term compared to their winter wheat uh, follow rotation. And the basic reason for that is that these spring crops, of course, are um, flowering later and maturing later, during which time they're very subject to uh, heat and uh, water stress. And so some years you might get a decent yield and others you don't. But in the long, but in the long term, they're, uh, they just haven't worked out. Uh, but, but I should say that they're integral in the, in the uh, inter, these spring, some, many of these spring crops are integral in the uh, intermediate high rainfall zones where they're a very important part of their cropping system, but not in, not in the, the low zone, which I define as that receiving less than 12 inches of uh, annual precip, you know, the typical wheat follow zone. Right. So, um, yeah, one thing I noticed watching your work uh, when I was in Nebraska was just the difference between in Nebraska, we got summer rainfall, and here in the Pacific Northwest, it's primarily winter rainfall. So that's when uh, the, the the rain comes, and and so maybe winter crops are more capable of utilizing that moisture um, than spring crops. Yeah, they get going. And I should mention, uh, you mentioned the three crops that I'm that we're going to discuss today. All of these need to be planted after a year of follow. None of them do well in, in what we'd call a recrop situation without follow. So uh, that, <laughs> from what we know to date, so far, 
these three winter crops uh, all need to be planted after a year of follow. And they need to be planted fairly early, too. And by early, you know, before September 15th. Um, and, and you can plant them later, except, but you're going to get some yield decline. So uh, they mimic winter wheat in that sense, uh, as far as planting date and the need for uh, a, a follow year before in the, in the low precip zone. Okay, so they they um, offer diversification, but not necessarily intensification of the cropping system. That's correct. Yeah. Okay. okay. Still, an important thing to have as a weed scientist that diversification really helps with uh, breaking pest cycles, weed cycles. So you good bet. to have. So, so tell us some of the pros of winter canola from your work. Well, yeah, winter canola has really come on in the last uh, fifteen. Years And it's not only my work. I've been working with it uh, for 20 years, actually. Uh, But some of these farmers have been, uh, you know, at it for 30 years. Uh, But uh, it's really come on in the last 15 years. Uh, uh, Like uh, this last year, 2019 crop year, there were 71,000 acres of uh, uh, canola planted. Most of that was spring canola in the intermediate and high rainfall zones. But 21,000 acres of that was winter canola grown in the drylands. So uh, that's that's increasing uh, every year we, we've seen over the past, uh, past year. Um, and then the and, uh, rotation benefits, you've alluded to that, Drew. Of course, you know, we're planting a, a brassica, a broadleaf. Uh, it's a great break crop uh, to reduce soil-borne pathogens. And, and as a weed scientist, you're well aware of the opportunities it allows farmers for uh, grass weed control uh, with, uh, you know, uh, group one herbicides or what have you for downy brome, jointed goat grass. So, and the farmers are aware of that. And so that's, a, that's really great. Um, there's a new uh, huge canola seed processing plant or seed, seed crushing plant in Warden, uh, the biggest west of the uh, Rocky Mountains. Uh, so that's a ready access to a crushing plant and uh, don't need to send it to North Dakota or Canada anymore for crushing. Um, the farmers do report uh, a yield bump after canola. Uh, many farmers report this, uh, you know, up to 20 percent of your next wheat crop will be, uh, you know, uh, in- increased in yield with with uh, canola is the preceding crop. Now, some of our research out here, uh, we're learning a lot about the soil microbiome and soil microbiology, and I won't go into that. But anyway, we've got a lot of neat studies going on with uh, a lot of people involved trying to figure this out. And probably the bottom line, uh, well, I should also mention that the private sector is actively involved with breeding and development of new winter canola lines and spring canola. And many of these have some pretty neat traits like Imazamax, uh, residual herbicide tolerance. Uh, so, you know, farmers in the Clearfield system can uh, go into canola afterwards uh, 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 profitably. And, and, and then again, uh, the big thing is farmers can, can make some money growing winter canola in the drylands, even assuming a fairly modest average yield of you know, 2,500 pounds per acre, and oftentimes they can get more and sometimes less, of course. Um, you know, let's call it 18 cents. I think it was 18 cents last week. Uh, you know, if you get 2,500 pounds at 18 cents, that's $450 an acre gross. 
and that would be the equivalent of 90 bushels of soft white wheat at $5. So, um, so uh, yeah, that's uh, basically the pros, I would think, in a nutshell. Okay, so uh, lots of things for people to to consider, lots of possibilities, but then they need to consider the cons. What do you see as, as the cons of winter canola? Well, Drew, that pretty much comes down to one thing, or the main thing is stand establishment. Canola, of course, has a very small seed, um, and you can't sock it down uh, with five inches of soil cover like you can winter wheat or winter triticale or winter pea. Uh, you, you, you really shouldn't cover it with more than a couple inches of soil. I, most people would say absolutely no more than three inches. And so uh, that makes it tough. And also uh, canola, the hypocotyl of canola, does not like um, emerging through hot surface soils. And so you know what it's like in eastern Washington in out in August and early September uh, the air temperature might be uh, 85, but your soil temperature at the surface might be 110. And so canola does not like emerging through that, and it'll just uh, most of the time will not. So uh, you need to plant shallow, and you need to plant when they basically uh, people think uh, with air temperatures not more than about 85 degrees when the, when the uh, hypocotyl is nearing the soil surface. So in that sense, um, Canola is not a winter canola is not a crop in the drylands that you can just go out and say, well, I'm going to make this a standard part of my crop rotation because many years you won't be able to plant it because it's too dry or too hot. Uh, but some years you can. And, uh, you know, for example, if we get a uh, summer uh, August rain, any rain between August 1 and September 15th of a half inch will wet up Kimbala really well. It'll dry, you know, it'll wet up. That's the farmer term. Yeah. And so uh, that's an opportunity to just go out and plant it shallow and uh, you'd have a very high likelihood of getting a stand. Uh, what's the chance of getting one of those rains? Well, long-term research at the Lynn station shows over a hundred years that chance of getting a half an inch of rain between August 1 and September 15th is 22%. So, you know, quarter of the time. Uh, uh, so bottom line is you can't plant it every year, but when you do have an opportunity, drop everything and go plant winter canola. Okay. I've seen some, um, some different canola just this year. There's some, some canola that's, uh, uh, what is this? The very start of October when we're recording this, it's, it's very large. It must've been planted I would guess back in July, maybe. Is, is there still some work being done on when best to plant canola? It sounds like you you prefer it uh, between August 1 and September 15th. Um, but is, is are other people trying other times? Well, that's an excellent question and very relevant. And the answer is yes. Um, farmers and researchers have tried planting earlier. And, of course, the advantage of planting earlier is it's not so hot and uh, you're more likely to have water near the surface in your follow. And so uh, we, as researchers, have gone out and tried planting uh, on numerous dates, beginning as early as June 15th. And um, what we found is if you plant that early, uh, the, the winter canola will certainly get an, you'll have an excellent stand, but it, it will get big and then yet get bigger and it will use all of its available water by September, turn white, and then die. So um, that's too early. However, um, 
some people, and there's a, a private company, and I know a couple farmers, and we are going to move into this, and then possibly Isaac Metz and the uh, Washington Oil Seeds uh, Extension Agronomist will move into this too, uh, try and growth uh, retardants on the uh, 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 young canola seedlings to keep them from growing so much during the summer. And so that might be very promising. Uh, and another another uh, way you might approach this, and they do this in Australia, and you're probably familiar with this, Drew, with all your experience in Australia. Uh, but uh, farmers are trying it here is a, what's called dual purpose canola, where you plant it early and then put some cattle out there to graze it. Um, and uh, that way you have some feed, fresh feed for your cattle, and it'll keep the... Um, Theoretically, anyway, keep the uh, the canola growth uh, reduced. So uh, both a growth stimulant and the and the uh, cattle feeding are, are some possible options where we could get stand earlier. Okay, so lots of benefits to winter canola with one conundrum: how to get a good stand that that survives the winter. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Okay, so what about some of these other crops? What are some of the pros and cons of winter pea? Well, winter pea, again, uh, this has just sort of come on in the last, uh, oh, 10 plus years. Uh, Howard Nelson with Highline Green was just uh, instrumental in getting this going when he was, he was with them. Um, uh, this last year, there were about 12,000 acres of winter uh, peas grown in the drylands of eastern Washington. Again, like canola, it's a broadleaf crop, so you still get the, uh, uh, you know, good suppression of, uh, like, soil-borne diseases that we have with wheat. Uh, you can use uh, uh, grass weed herbicides to clean up your weeds, and some of those are biggie. Um, uh, a huge benefit in the drylands is it's unsurpassed emergence, Drew. You can sock winter peas down as deep as you want, and they will come up. You get a cresting rain, no problem. It's a big seed. Uh, uh, it, 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 uh, I, I, I'm not aware of any instances of farmers having to replant winter pea. Uh, it will come up. Don't be afraid to plant up deep and, uh, you know, eight inches of soil cover. It's amazing. So that's, that's big. You know, you, you're, they know they can go out and plant them once and they will get a stand. Um, decent winter hardiness. Matter of fact, some of these newer varieties have winter hardiness approaching that of winter wheat. Uh, they can take they can take the soil temperatures down to uh, uh, minus five degrees Fahrenheit without snow cover, so that's not too bad. Uh, and they of course fix their legume and they fix their own nitrogen from the atmosphere, so you don't have to to fertilize with nitrogen. Uh, they use way less water than wheat. They only root down to about three feet. Uh, and uh, they have stable yields. I've been again. I've been working with all these crops, and uh, I have some long-term experiments with winter pea two experiments, and uh, their yields are stable. Uh, they go through a drought year and still produce, you know, fifteen, sixteen hundred pounds, and then in a wetter year or a normal year, you can get up to you know three thousand pounds per acre and even more. Uh, these are stand-up peas, uh, no need for any uh, new machinery, and that goes for canola too, by the way. Uh, so you can just use your wheat equipment, your combine, your drills, it'll work fine. And uh, and, and uh, you get an, a, a yield boost in your next wheat crop. And the water savings are pretty substantial uh, of what winter wheat uses versus winter pea. 
So with both of these, with, with all of these, well, with both of these winter canola and winter pea, you'd be looking at in the drylands, you know, a winter pea follow, uh, winter wheat follow type rotation. The same, so a four-year rotation with, again, like you mentioned, just two crops every four years. Okay. And, and the cons, what's, what's the downside of the winter pea? Well, uh, uh, the big and huge downside of winter pea is the price, which has been going downhill. Uh, this last year, um, I think the farmers got about eight cents a pound, which is not much. In some of those earlier years, they were getting up to 17, 18, even 19 cents per, per pound. Um, that's gone down. Uh, the, uh, uh, country of India has a 50% tariff on any import of any uh, grain legumes into their country. They, they are, they're the world, by far, the world's hugest, biggest consumer of grain legumes. And uh, they want to be able to produce their own food, be self-sufficient. So they put this uh, very prohibitive 50% tariff on any imports of legumes. So that essentially shut that down. Um However, on a, on a higher note, uh, many people, um, uh, this fractionated uh, pea flour, uh, where they break it into the various components, you know, um, is becoming increasingly popular. And, and with people becoming, you know, again, increasingly health conscious, who knows where this might go. But right now at eight cents, that's sort of a struggle. Um, you know, you get the rotation benefits again, and you don't pay for the nitrogen, uh, but uh, the the, pr the price certainly should be higher. Okay, so this is one that agronomically fits really well. We just need need the markets to turn around for us a bit. Well, and we got we've got some uh, room to move forward on uh, the breeding as well, not the agronomy. Well, agronomy certainly, but uh, on the breeding, they need to get the pea size a little bit bigger and get the clear seed coat. We have two two breeders working on this. Kurt Brownwort with Progene, um, you know, he's very active, and then of course, uh, Dr. Rebecca McGee with ARS, uh, Wright and Pullman, uh, both breeding peas, and so uh, hopefully we'll get there. Okay. Well, we just have a few minutes left. Uh, let's talk about uh, the pros and cons of winter triticale. Okay, winter triticale again uh, sort of came in about the last 15 years. Um, it's a cross between rye and, and a cereal rye and wheat. Um, it's, it's a feed grain, basically, um, uh, a good source of uh, protein, amino acids, B vitamins. Um, you know, so it's, it's a decent feed, but it is a, it's a feed grain. Uh, it's got uh, much enhanced uh, tolerance to both high and low pH soils, and low pH soils are becoming a you know pretty big deal in some of our higher rainfall regions of the state. Uh, they're less susceptible to many fungal diseases, and that includes stripe rust. In all the years I've worked with tri uh, uh, winter triticale, we have not had to spray for stripe rust. Uh, not that it's uh, we wouldn't if we had. Uh, 500,000 acres, it would probably come on. So you can save some money right there doing that. Uh, it has truly excellent winter hardiness. There's no reported cases of winter triticaling, winter killing ever uh, in the PNW. And uh, a biggie, we get uh, on average, in my uh, long-term experience, we're averaging 15% uh, higher grain yields than winter wheat. Uh, and that, again, is pretty consistent. Um, some years it's higher. 
Um, I don't have time to go into that, but, uh, and it, it matures before winter wheat. So, you know, if, if you want to get going with your harvest a week early and cut some acres before your wheat's ready, uh, grow some uh, winter triticale, it will be ready. Um, and, uh, we do have, uh, uh, farmers have called it more bulletproof than, than winter wheat, which, which it is. And, uh, um, about three years ago, a, a group of a small group of wheat farmers, and uh, university faculty lobbied to get federal crop insurance, and they were successful in doing so. So now a farmer can show, can uh, insure uh, his or her winter triticale crop, just like wheat or canola or pea with the federal uh, crop insurance. Okay, that's a big bonus. Yeah. Okay, and and cons, again, maybe just price or? (laughs) You got it. It's the price. Yeah, even with it is a feed grain, of course, uh, and even with the fifteen percent higher yield, uh, uh, the economists say we still need to get another ten percent out of it, and it can either be higher yield or higher price to to, to be competitive. Uh, and again, this is with ten years of data from my trial, just saying, well, with what you've done, we'd still need to get that uh, extra ten percent. Um, so um, I don't. I maybe that's uh, possible. Uh, and, uh, another con is the perception uh, by many farmers that uh, this winter triticale must be a feral weed because it's got rye as a cereal rye as one of its parents. However, I'd like to just remind uh, and reassure readers or your listeners that uh, there's absolutely no e- evidence that triticale has secondary dormancy. Uh, and like wheat does not persist in the soil. It does not persist in the soil any more than wheat. So, um, and uh, it, and I hear this quite a bit too. And it does not revert back to rye. No, so. it does. It's genetically impossible, from what yeah. I've been told, to revert back to yeah. rye. But yeah. it does. Hey, Drew, the big thing: you go out and uh, you drive by a field, and if you see some volunteer triticale, whether it came from a passing truck or a bird or wherever, uh, it's sticking up six to eight inches above your wheat canopy. And it's very noticeable. And so um, you, you also have volunteer weed out there from that passing truck, too, which you would never notice. So uh, but <laughs> so that perception does persist. It's a tough crop, but it does not have secondary dormancy and it will not revert back to cereal rye. And, and if I could, Drew, just leave it on a high note. How are we going to get this 10 percent? Well, there's some exciting work. Uh, the 10% increase in value, either through yield or price. There's some work going on right now, very exciting work at the University of California, Davis, uh, where they're they're uh, breeding uh, triticale for bread, not as a whole loaf necessarily, but as a portion of a flour in, in bread or other bread products. And uh, they have some head rows at Lind. Uh, some of those look really exciting. Uh, they planted them again this year. And so... Um, there might be a future for, for triticale uh, as a human food. Well, that is a good note. And I think all three of these crops have real promise and, and diversity, I think, is important to a farming system. And, and we've lacked that uh, uh, in the past in the, in the dry areas. So this, this yes. kind of work is really critical to sustaining uh, that farming system, in my opinion. So thank you for all your work in that area and, and for continuing to uh, 
look for alternatives that keep farmers profitable and sustainable in the dryland areas. Well, thanks, Drew, and thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us and listening to the WSU Wheat Beat Podcast. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. If you have questions or topics you'd like to hear on future episodes, please email me at drew.lyon, that's L-Y-O-N, at wsu.edu. You can find us online at smallgrains.wsu.edu and on Facebook and Twitter at WSU Small Grains. The WSU Wheat Beat Podcast is a production of Connors Communications in the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. I'm Drew Lyon. We'll see you next time.